Uh, As I mentioned last week, last Sunday marked our 10th anniversary uh, as a church, a pretty significant uh, anniversary in the life of a church. And I want to use the occasion of this anniversary to do a few things here today. Uh, First of all, I want to take a quick look uh, back over the past 10 years. Uh, A lot of fruitful ministry has happened in that time. Some important milestones have been reached and some important lessons were learned. And then I want to look at the story of Hezekiah and Sennacherib in 2 Chronicles 32. The only thing I'll say about that story right now is that it's a story about the need for and the importance of courage. And so we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. And then the third thing that I want to do is launch off of that story of Hezekiah and Sennacherib to talk about what I believe God has laid on my heart for our church as we embark upon our second decade as a church. What I believe God has laid on my heart to share with you as we start this second decade is that like Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem, we are going to need courage in the coming decade. We are going to need people, uh, we are going to need to be people who are strong and courageous. Friends, this is a aggressive amount of information to take on in a single sermon And you all, now that we are at two services, have gotten used to 25 and 30-minute messages. So I'm going to have to appeal to you to be tolerant of the old length of messages we used to have, uh, because we'll be going a little longer than normal. If you could please find some way to look more alarmed and disgusted than you are right now, it would be so encouraging to me. Thank you. Thank you for all of those uh, expressions of great concern and dismay, and I can see like it in your eyes. You're thinking, okay, uh, can, I, can I look like I'm going to the restroom and never come back? So, and I better stop trying to do this or I'm just lengthening the, the, the message. <laughs> so. so let's uh, look back at the past 10 years. A lot of fruitful ministry has happened in these past 10 years. We started out with a group of about 60 people Uh, most of whom were sent along with uh, my family and myself from Eastside Vineyard in Pickerington, Ohio, that church that so graciously uh, supported what we uh, have been doing here. And they supported it at great cost to their own church, and we're forever thankful uh, for them. From that group of about 60, we have grown to an average Sunday attendance of somewhere around 275 people. Uh, We also have around 400 people that seem to consider this their church home, but a whole bunch of them, perhaps some of you that happened here today, only come one or two times per month. So that's how you can have 400 people that seem like they're connecting with your church, but 275 on Sunday. So we need to talk about that, but we're going to keep things positive today, so so we'll move, move right along. We always desire to reach more people for Christ, but in a culture where you're routinely hearing about people abandoning churches and churches shrinking rather than growing, we are very pleased that in our first 10 years as a church, we have grown by 450%. You're allowed to clap. That's a good thing. In our first decade, we've had somewhere around 130 people commit or recommit to Christ. We have baptized 105 people. We have assisted many folks financially. In fact, one of the things that I 
uh, am so pleased with with our church is that for our size and for our resources, I think we have been very generous in helping folks that come into financial difficulty. Of course, one of the things we do to help those in need in our community is we've been very significant contributors to the Storehouse Food Pantry, uh, partnering with the uh, Nazarene Church in town. Uh, For that, our team of people who serve there and the money that this church gives toward that uh, cause is a very significant part uh, of what happens there. That's been a great thing. We have taught and cared for hundreds and hundreds of children in our flight school, middle school, and high school ministries. You know, kind of, uh, kind of grading out how we're doing on spiritual growth is a difficult uh, set of statistics to come by, but we do know that many people have grown in their faith. Uh, people have been drawn closer to the Lord through things like our Walking with Jesus classes, even through uh, the, the skillful leading of worship that our team does here to put us in touch with God and help us to encounter his presence uh, each Sunday morning. Our small groups have served this purpose of helping people grow in their faith. And of course, just the relationships that form among uh, members of the congregation go a long way to helping us grow uh, in our faith. So we've seen a lot of good things there. We've seen some marriages healed in our church. Sadly, we've also seen some marriages that were not healed, but we're thankful for those that have been. And I was especially moved by the recent testimony of Brian and Chris Alton as they were uh, leaving us to move out of state and, and just all that they shared about the positive impact this church Uh, has had on their marriage. And so we're very thankful for that. We have uh, been involved in missions in our first 10 years, being pretty significantly involved in El Salvador, giving money, uh, taking teams down to to do very substantive projects, building houses, building retaining walls, helping uh, established community gardens, a lot of good work uh, that has been done there. We have uh, been involved in our community in a lot of different ways, kindness outreaches, what some of you may um, connect more with the term servant evangelism, uh, community service. We, we have been a very active church and we've seen a lot of good fruit. We are currently engaged in an effort to establish a new church in New Lexington, about 35 miles southeast of here in Perry County, uh, which is a very significant undertaking and something we're very excited to see how God blesses. In fact, we had an event there yesterday, and we gave away uh, 33 bikes to 33 happy kids in one hour time, and it was a great event. You can clap for that. I want to thank everybody who participated in that event, and of course we did the bike repair here in Pataskala the week before, and thank all of you who participated in that event as well. I especially, for yesterday's event, want to say thanks to Bill Sharon, who over the last year or so has kept his eyes out for bikes, gotten them, uh, fixed them up, and was largely responsible for the 33 bikes that we had to be able to give away to those kids that were so excited by them. And so, Bill, we thank you for your work. So I could go on and on, but I am trying to keep this uh, brief, and so we're going to leave it at that for now, but we have seen good fruit as a church. We've also achieved some important milestones as a church. We secured our own property here and building in early 2008. We added the sanctuary that you're sitting in now in late 2008, early 2009, and fully moved into this facility in April of 2009. Securing our own place and being fully 
occupying our own facility by our fourth anniversary was a very important milestone and really a pretty significant achievement for a church uh, that was that young at that time. Another milestone that we've uh, seen is the the growth of our staff. You know, we certainly started the church with a lot of uh, volunteer leaders, but the paid staff amounted to Tirza and myself, though in fairness to Tirza, calling her paid staff with the small amount that we paid her was probably not entirely accurate. Uh, But even with that small start and just two people that were going to be receiving some compensation from the church, we actually had no idea at that point if really anybody was going to be paid staff because we just did not know how it was going to go. And yet God blessed us and and, uh, enabled that to be true. We grew pretty quickly in our first few years and we ended up in a situation where we were objectively understaffed as a church, but God has blessed us in the past few years uh, to correct that. And so we now have a full-time assistant pastor, Ben Yee, which has been a great addition to our staff. And uh, Ben's not here today. He said he needed a vacation. And I said, I didn't understand why. And he said, well, just trust me, I need one. And I said, okay, we'll go ahead. No, that's not really how it happened. But so, so we have, uh, we have Ben uh, on our staff. Uh, we, of course, have my wife, Michelle, who is our part-time worship director and connections director. We have Tirza as our children's ministry director. And as we just announced, Heather uh, taking on this combined role of administration and nursery toddler. And, of course, we, we aren't a church that makes a real strong distinction between vocational or paid staff members and, and unpaid or volunteer staff members, leaders, and we have a whole lot of people who, while it is not their vocation, it is their calling and it is what they do, and they lead very well, and uh, we thank all of you who do that. Churches cannot function correctly if only the paid staff is involved in leading, uh, and so we, we need a lot of folks to lead, and we have a lot of folks that lead in this church, and we thank you uh, for that. So I could say more about that, but I'll leave that uh, for now on the important milestones. And then we've also learned some important lessons over the last 10 years. One of the important lessons I think we've learned is, uh, I feel as though we've learned how to do two services in a way that is sustainable Uh, for the long haul after some trial and error, you know, not getting it right in the beginning. And this is an important lesson to learn because unless we just want to continually build bigger auditoriums, which would be fine with me, but I'm guessing might not be fine with you, unless we want to do that, we have to learn how to do multiple services well, and I think we have. So that's been a good lesson to learn. Uh, We learned that it doesn't have to be true what the experts tell people who plant churches. Here's what the experts t- tell people, including, including what they told me when we planted this church 10 years ago. They said within the first two to five years, it depended on which expert you were talking to, within the next two to five years, everybody who starts the church with you will leave. Now go get them. That's kind of a discouraging way to start with the knowledge that everybody's going to leave within the first two to five years. And uh, I am happy to report, actually humbled to report, that most, not all, but most of the people who were a part of that original core team for this church are still a part of this church. And so we learned that the experts don't have to be right about everything, and uh, that was something they weren't right about, and, and we're very pleased about that. Most of the folks who have left have left on really good terms for really good reasons. We've only had a handful 
of difficult departures from people who are originally a part of that, uh, that team. And so we'll see if in the next 10 years we can continue uh, to prove the exception uh, to that rule. I can't possibly cover all of the different lessons that we have learned over the past 10 years, so I'm simply going to share one more. It's a personal one, and I hope it doesn't come off wrong. I don't want it to, but I just feel like I need to share it, take the risk. But I've learned that I can't keep everybody happy, and so I've decided that I'm not going to fret about trying to do that anymore. And I hope that's okay with you, Uh, but that's the way it is either way. Uh, I'm going to focus on leading in a way that I think is pleasing to God and leave it at that. And I hope I'm not the only leader who has learned that lesson or is learning that lesson. I hope all of our leaders in the church either have or are in the process of learning that lesson because it's really an important lesson for a pastor to learn. It's an important lesson for any leader to learn. And so I'm thankful that in the last 10 years I have learned that lesson. And if you find yourself kind of pushing back against that and you think maybe that's not such a great lesson to learn, I would invite you to try to keep 275 people happy sometime and see how it goes for you. And then you'll understand why that's an important lesson for someone to learn. Of course, I'm sure there are some of you here wondering what the period of time was when I was trying to keep people happy. (laughs) And if that's you, I just want you to know you're a very, very bad person. (laughs) So, So we've seen a good bit of fruit, we have reached some milestones, and we have learned some lessons. We always desire more fruit. Uh, We are not going to sit back and relax, but we can look back over the past 10 years, the fruit we've had, the milestones we've reached, the lessons we've learned, and we can say, you know, it's been a good 10 years. And, And I feel really good because I think that those 10 years have positioned us very well for the next 10. And I am hoping and believing and praying that the next 10 years, should Christ delay his return, are going to be years of increased fruitfulness together. Amen? All right. So let's turn our attention to 2 Chronicles 32, verses 1 through 23, the story of Hezekiah and Sennacherib. Uh, I am going to read the text. You can follow along as I read. I think it'll be on the screen behind me. And if you need a Bible, you're welcome to help yourself to the Bibles on either side of the sound booth. Here's what it says. After all that Hezekiah had so faithfully done, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. He laid siege to the fortified cities, thinking to conquer them for himself. When Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he intended to make war on Jerusalem, he consulted with his officials and military staff about blocking off the water from the springs outside the city, and they helped him. A large force of men assembled, and they blocked all the springs and the stream that flowed through the land. Why should the kings of Assyria come and find plenty of water, they said. Then he worked hard, repairing all the broken sections of the wall and building towers on it. He built another wall outside that one and reinforced the supporting terraces of the city of David. He also made large numbers of weapons and shields. He appointed military officers over the people and assembled them before him in the square at the city gate and encouraged them with these words, be strong and courageous. 
Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army with him, for there is a greater power with us than with him. With him is only the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people gained confidence from what Hezekiah, the king of Judah, said. Later, when Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and all his forces were laying siege to Lachish, he sent his officers to Jerusalem with this message for Hezekiah, king of Judah, and for all the people of Judah who were there. This is what Sennacherib, king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing your confidence that you remain in Jerusalem under siege? When Hezekiah says, the Lord our God will save us from the hand of the king of Assyria, he is misleading you to let you die of hunger and thirst. Did not Hezekiah himself remove this God's high places and altars, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before one altar and burn sacrifices on it? Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of the other lands? Were the gods of those nations ever able to deliver their land from my hand? Who of all the gods of these nations that my fathers destroyed has been able to save his people from me? How then can your God deliver you from my hand? Now do not let Hezekiah deceive you and mislead you like this. Do not believe him. For no God of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you from my hand? Sennacherib's officers spoke further against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. The king also wrote letters insulting the Lord, the God of Israel, and saying this against him, Just as the gods of the peoples of the other lands did not rescue their people from my hand, so the God of Hezekiah will not rescue his people from my hand. And they called out in Hebrew to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to terrify them and make them afraid in order to capture the city. They spoke about the God of Jerusalem as they did about the gods of the other peoples of the world as the work of men's hands. King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, cried out in prayer to heaven about this. And the Lord sent an angel who annihilated all the fighting men and the leaders and officers in the camp of the Assyrian king. So he withdrew to his own land in disgrace. And when he went into the temple of his God, some of his sons cut him down with a sword. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others. He took care of them on every side. Many brought offerings to Jerusalem for the Lord and valuable gifts for Hezekiah, king of Judah. From then on, he was highly regarded by all the nations. So the context, the setting... Uh, for what we just read, is that at this time, Israel was divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Sennacherib was the king of Assyria, and Hezekiah was the king of Judah, and Sennacherib had already prevailed against the northern kingdom. He had carried them off into captivity. And he had already invaded some of the outlying fortified cities surrounding Jerusalem, the cities of Judah. And then in the text that we read, he had turned his attention to conquering Jerusalem itself. The storyline of these events is sort of complicated, and you have to look at other parts of the Bible to piece it all together, specifically 2 Kings 18 and 19. But one of the things you find there is that prior to the events we read, Hezekiah had attempted to appease Sennacherib when he had previously set his sights on Jerusalem. 
He had appeased him by paying tribute to him and basically becoming a vassal state of the Assyrian king. So Hezekiah and Judah, Jerusalem, had previously been threatened, and in response to the threat, Hezekiah had chosen to try to appease Sennacherib. Friends, appeasement is what is done when courage is lacking. When a lack of courage causes you to shrink back from an enemy, shrink back from an adversary, shrink back from from a bully, when there is a lack of courage, you try to appease. But as is almost always the case with bullies, appeasement had not appeased Sennacherib. And so his sights are once again set on Jerusalem. And so this time, realizing that appeasement had been futile, Hezekiah finds the courage that he had previously lacked, and he prepares for a confrontation with Sennacherib. He's not going to be pushed around anymore. He's not going to appease. Instead, he is going to resist and confront. And so he does two things to get ready for the confrontation with Sennacherib. First of all, he prepares his defenses And then secondly, he encourages his people. Look at verse 2 again. When Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he intended to make war on Jerusalem, he consulted with his officials and military staff about blocking off the water from the springs outside the city. A large force of men assembled. They blocked all the springs and the stream that flowed through the land. Then you go down to verse 5. He worked hard repairing the broken sections of the wall. He built towers on it. He built another wall outside of that wall, and he reinforced the supporting terraces of the city of David. He made large numbers of weapons and shields, and he appointed military officers over the people. So the enemy he tried to appease hasn't been appeased. He's decided to make war on Jerusalem. And so Hezekiah prepares his defenses and then he encourages his people. Here's what we read in verse 6. He appointed military officers over the people and assembled them before him in the square of the city and encouraged them with these words. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army with him, for there is a greater power with us than with him. With him is only the arm of the flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. Now, you have to keep in mind what they are facing here. Sennacherib had a vast army, as the text told us. Sennacherib had conquered every city that he had set out to conquer. He had conquered Israel and carried the people into captivity. He had conquered the fortified cities of Judah that surrounded Jerusalem. This was not the JV team that they were facing. This was a vast, fearsome, ruthless, highly successful army. And I want you to notice how Hezekiah encourages the people. First, he says, be strong and courageous. It's always been amazing to me how powerful these simple words can be. When they are spoken with conviction, they are powerful words. I have a good friend who has often spoken these words to me. And one time he he wrote them on a post-it note. And and, and the, the words just 
like reading them on the post-it note. I could just feel the conviction. I could imagine him saying this to me. And it was an encouraging, an encouraging thing. There is something about the challenge inherent in these words that if a person has much of a pulse at all, it calls them to a higher place. It causes us to want to kind of rise up and say, yes, I, I can be strong. I can be courageous. But just as soon as we begin to feel that way, we face a temptation. We face the temptation to fear. And so Hezekiah, after saying, be strong and courageous, he encouraged, uh, he continues his encouragement this way, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army that is with him. So do be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Yes, there is a vast army aligned against you. Yes, there is very legitimate cause for concern, but don't be afraid. It's easy enough to say, but if you're going to tell me not to be afraid when Sennacherib and his vast army are coming against us, you're going to have to give me some solid reason why I should not be afraid. And so Hezekiah gives them the reason they don't need to be afraid. He gives them the reason that they can be strong and courageous. And this reason is the same for us today in Pataskal, Ohio on June 14th, 2015, as it was for the people of Jerusalem that day. Do not be afraid or discouraged for there is a greater power with us than with him. With him is only the arm of the flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. Here's the reason that you don't have to be afraid. Here's the reason that you can be strong and courageous even though this fearsome adversary is aligned against you. Because all Sennacherib has is the strength of flesh. But we have the Lord our God to help us and fight our battles. Hezekiah knew what the heroes of the faith throughout all generations have always kept at the forefront of their thinking. That we do not fight our battles in our own strength. God fights our battles for us. They could be strong and courageous. Because as mighty as Sennacherib was... He was still just flesh. As vast as his army was, it was still just flesh. And flesh is no match for Almighty God. Flesh is no match for the one who simply spoke and the worlds came in to being. No match for the one who not only created everything, but sustains everything. No match for the one who has the power over life and death. And so we're told at the end of verse 8, And the people gained confidence from what Hezekiah the king had said. So they have a fearsome enemy. They've heard these encouraging words. They have gained confidence. But their enemy and our enemies don't give up because we gain a little confidence. Your enemy always continues to try to undermine your confidence. And so Sennacherib sent his officers to Jerusalem with a message. 
I'm not going to read it all, but it's in verses 10 through 19, and I just want to highlight a few of the things that he said. Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all of the other peoples of the other lands? Were the gods of those nations able to deliver them from my hands? No god of any nation has been able to deliver his people from my hands, and yours won't either. And then verse 19 tells us of the great conceit of Sennacherib. And it's important to note that it was a conceit based in ignorance. They, Sennacherib and the Assyrians, spoke about the God of Jerusalem as they did about the other gods of the other peoples of the world as the work of men's hands. So Sennacherib thought that the God of Jerusalem was the same as every other God, which is to say, no God at all. Just a created image, an idol that couldn't actually do anything. But you see, Sennacherib was ignorant about the God of Jerusalem, the God of Hezekiah. He was ignorant to assume that this God was the same as all the other gods. And so Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah cried out to the living God in prayer. And the living God delivered Jerusalem. Sennacherib found out that flesh does not fare so well when it comes up against the only God who is actually God. The only God who is actually the living God. Verse 21, the Lord sent an angel who annihilated all the fighting men and the leaders and the officers in the camp of the Assyrian king. So he withdrew to his own land in disgrace. Flesh is no match for God. Now, here's the main thing that I want you to see in all of this. It is that Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem were able to be strong and courageous, even with a ruthless enemy aligned against them. Because of this truth, they understood that there was a greater power with them than what was against them. Friends, as we embark on our second decade as a church, I believe God has impressed upon me that we are going to need courage. He has impressed upon me that I need to call us to be strong and courageous, to be people who don't fear, but who are strong and courageous because we know what Hezekiah knew that there is a greater power with us than there is against us. And there are three specific ways that I believe we're going to need to be courageous in the coming years. I'm sure there are more, but these are three that I felt like the Holy Spirit impressed upon me, highlighted to me, and wanted me to talk about today as we embark on this second decade as a church. In our second decade as a church, we are going to need the courage to stand against apostasy. It's very quiet in here. 
Apostasy simply means falling away from the truth. An apostate is someone who has once believed but has now rejected the truth of God. And friends, there can be no question anymore that there is a great deal of apostasy in the church today. The church universal is filling up with people who reject the essentials of the faith and yet continue to call themselves Christian. Whole denominations are rejecting the truth of God, yet continuing to call themselves Christian. There are entire denominations today that are apostate. And increasingly, evangelical churches are being affected as people continue to stay in evangelical churches while rejecting the truth of Scripture, rejecting the truth of God. And you can call me paranoid if you want, but I think it's already happening and is going to increase in the, in the future. We are going to see in the coming days a concerted effort by apostates to infiltrate Bible-believing churches and work in subversive ways to undermine the faith of what have been faithful, Bible-believing congregations. And here's one of the greatest allies these folks do have and will have. Christian people who themselves believe the truth, but have largely lost the willingness to contend for the truth, lost the willingness to fight for the truth, having surrendered to the culture's sentiment that there isn't anything that is actually true enough to be worth fighting for. I understand this sentiment very well. Trust me. None of us like conflict And most of us, American people that we are, have a very strong live and let live impulse. And I'll tell you, honestly, on some level, I'm just fine with people believing and doing whatever they want to do. Each to his own, as they say. But within the church of Jesus Christ, it cannot be so. This impulse we have to want to avoid conflict, to want to just always say, no matter what the issue is, well, can't we just get along here, is an impulse that apostates do and will increasingly use to try to convince otherwise Bible-believing people that there isn't anything worth fighting for when in reality there are things that are still worth fighting for. And we're going to need courage to not be like Hezekiah was and try to appease someone, we're going to need to resist the temptation to try to appease the apostates. They're going to try to get us to see their rejection of truth as just a fresh look at the Scriptures. They're going to to say to us, well, I arrived at this position after much soul-searching and and honest seeking after God. They're going to act like we're awfully mean and narrow-minded people to actually contend for anything. They're going to say things like this, let's find a third-way approach. And let me tell you what a third-way approach means almost every time you hear it referenced. It means those of you who actually believe what the Bible says 
are going to need to just be happy with the rest of us openly rejecting what the Bible says. Anytime you hear third way approach referenced, your ears need to perk up and you need to be really on guard about what's about to be said. Let's just agree to disagree. I'll live in sin. You tell me that you think I shouldn't be doing that, but then it's all okay. I'll reject the authority of the Bible. You'll tell me you disagree with that, but then we'll all just continue as if I think the Bible's what it actually is. You need to pay attention when you hear third way talked about. Now, here's the truth. On many things, on many topics, we can absolutely agree to disagree. I've been so thankful in this church that it feels like we've you know, drawn a lot of people here who have an appreciation for the fact that not everything is a fighting topic. And that's a wonderful thing. I mean, that's a wonderful thing. I mean, if we had people that wanted to fight about how many times we have communion and, you know, do I believe Jesus is coming before in the middle or at the end of the tribulation or any of those, I mean, I would just, I would do something else, actually. <laughs> I, I would do something else. I just, I just couldn't take it. I just could not take that. And, and so there are many, many things that we can just agree to disagree on. But on the essentials, we simply can't. And so we're going to need the courage to stand against the apostates and say, no, everything isn't just a matter of opinion. Some things are true. And so they are settled. They are beyond agreeing to disagree. Salvation in Christ alone is settled. Attack that. And we have to stand against you. Attack that, and I can't just say, well, I am for salvation in Christ alone. I have to also say, and I am against the untruth that you're telling. The deity of Christ is settled. Reject that, and we can't just chalk it up to a difference of opinion. We have to call it what it is, a rejection of of truth. The infallibility of Scripture is settled. Reject that, and we cannot have a third way of just agreeing to disagree about the authority and the infallibility of Scripture. We will have to stand against that. My intent today isn't to go through all the doctrines that are essential but simply to say we are going to need courage to stand against apostasy because the apostates will present themselves as something other and they will feign indignation that we care enough to stand against them. They'll accuse us of being unloving and unchristlike. They'll be wrong, but we'll need the courage to shake off our initial desire to try to appease them We'll need courage to resist our initial desire to just give a tip of our cap to their sincerely held belief and call it a day. We will need courage to stand, to know that there are some things that are worth fighting for even in the year 2015. In our second decade as a church, we're also going to need the courage to stand against increasing societal disapproval. 
And of course, neither of these first two areas are unique to us. These are going to be true of all Bible-believing churches and Christians. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one because I feel like I reference this quite a bit. I actually continue, uh, plan to continue speaking about it. We'll probably speak about it more thoroughly this fall. But if you're paying attention at all, you know that we are coming under increasing societal disapproval. Things that Christians and non-Christians used to almost universally agree about, they no longer do. Christians and non-Christians in the United States used to have many shared cultural and moral values. Increasingly, we don't. Increasingly, we are looked at with sort of an amazed disgust. We're encouraged to get with the times and we're told over and over and over and over again how mean and nasty Christians are. Now listen, there are mean and nasty Christians. Let me just tell you. I've been around the church long enough, which was about five days, to find out (laughs) that there are mean and nasty Christians. And if I can just be honest, once you become a pastor, you see even more mean and nasty Christians. They're out there. I know they're there. You know they're there. We all know they're there. I will never say that there aren't mean and nasty Christians. But here's what I will say. Most Christians are not mean and nasty. (laughs) But here's the thing. We are told this so much about ourselves that we are starting to believe it about every other Christian except me. That is what is happening today. In fact, I believe that forces outside of the church have have worked and been successful at creating a near civil war within the church as we pit ourselves against each other over every disagreement about what is the best way to engage our culture. One of the most common things that I see on Facebook today are Christians aligning themselves against other Bible-believing Christians on the side of the world that is hostile to Christ. And I'm perplexed and amazed. It's like an evangelism strategy. Be mean to the other Christians. Act like the other Christians are all crazy and then the world will give you a fair hearing and you'll be the one that gets to win them to Christ. It's like there is this civil war that is going on with the church as we position ourselves against each other over simple disagreements about what is the best way to engage the world that is far from God. As the pressure increases, I think you need to be prepared that someday it may increase so much that jobs are affected, livelihood is compromised. Not saying it's going to be next year, but I think those days are coming if Christ does not return really, really soon. And we're going to need courage to remain faithful in the face of societal disapproval even when livelihood is on the line. And here's how you're going to find the courage you need in those times. 
how I'll find the courage I need, how together we will have the courage we need if we really believe what Hezekiah and Jerusalem believed, that the power with us is greater than the power against us. If we'll remember that though the forces against us look strong, they only have the arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And so when he encouraged to stand against apostasy, when he encouraged to stand against societal disapproval, and then we'll need one more, uh, one more area that I felt impressed to focus on today. We're going to need courage to take on assignments that are too big for us. In the first service, I assured them that this being the last point, it was just about over. And my son pulled me aside after the first service and said, you told us it was just about over, and it really wasn't. So, so I won't give you the same hope, but, but this is the last point. Here's one of the greatest tra- tragedies, I believe, that occurs in churches. We forget that sometimes God calls us to things that are too big for us so that he can show his power to us and through us. And because we forget this, we relegate our thinking, we relegate our dreaming, we relegate the initiatives we undertake only to those things that we can do in our own flesh, only to those things we're pretty certain we can accomplish in our own strength, all because we forget that a power greater than flesh is with us. And because of this, our thinking remains smaller than God wants it to. Our prayers only ask for things we can make happen, whether God answers the prayer or not. Our dreams are confined to what we think we can pull off on our own, and we call this things like prudence and balance and caution. When more accurately from God's perspective, they are probably lack of faith, lack of courage, fear. In our second decade as a church, we're going to need courage to take on assignments that are too big for us, knowing that there is a power with us that is greater than what is against us. And this is going to apply in many ways. We're going to need people who are willing to step into leadership roles, even though they may be intimidated by leading and not think, and think they're not up to it. Some of you need to step up and lead home groups. You've been called by God to do it. You're gifted to do it, but you've been convinced that it's too big of a job for you. We're gonna need people who will trust God enough to say, if God, if God calls me to do this, I know he'll empower me to do it, and you'll be willing to step up and lead in a way that before you couldn't have seen yourself doing. We're going to need some that will be leading ministries that up to this point, you've not seen yourself being able to do that. For some of you, it's going to mean accepting the challenge to mentor a younger Christian. And so you take someone under your wing, not because the church came up with some organized effort to do it, although maybe we do that at some point, 
But you do it because you see a need. You see a younger Christian that needs discipled. And you say, you know what? Even though I don't have everything perfect in my life, I am a few steps ahead of where this person is. And I feel God tugging on my heart and putting them on my heart so I can do this. I can, I can step up and see if I can be helpful to this person as they grow in their faith. All of these kind of things, leading and mentoring, they require courage. For some of you here, it might be that you need to consider the possibility that God might want you to lead a church plant in a small town in southeastern Ohio, even though you always thought you'd live close to Columbus. And if God is dealing with you that way, we have a place for you. You should see me after service. So on that point, let's talk for a minute about church planting. We are going to need courage to plant churches. Trust me, when I go down to Perry County, and I see a town of 4,700 people with a poverty rate of 35%, a town where a church hasn't been planted or in 40 or 50 years, and every time I tell anybody we're trying to plant a church in Perry County, the reaction is something like this. Oh, wow. <laughs> hey, thanks for that encouragement. I really appreciate that. Man, that, that, that's going to be a tough undertaking. Okay, thanks. <laughs> and I sit there and I, in that office, and I, I think about what an undertaking it is. And I'm, I'm challenged to, to remain full of courage that it can be done. And then every time that I start to waver, something happens where God says once again, no, 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 no. I am greater than all of these things that seem like they're going to come against this thing. One of them happened yesterday with 33 happy kids in one hour. And I want to publicly thank our elders who supported this effort to establish a church in Perry County. I want to thank all of you who have prayed for that effort, all of you who have given to that effort, both uh, with your your, um, work and uh, with your finances. And I hope you continue to to be inclined that way because we'll need more finances down there soon. We're going to need courage to continue to step out of our comfort zones, to plant that church, to allow ourselves to be stretched, and continue to invest in that effort even when it would be easier not to. And here's something else we need to know. We need to know that Perry County won't be the only church plant that we ever participate in. I was expecting like a chorus of hallelujahs, amens at that point. And some of you I can't even beg it out of. Joel Seymour, who's going to preach here in a few weeks, is hoping that area vineyard churches will join him in a goal of seeing a vineyard church planted in every county seat in southeastern Ohio. If I added that up properly, that'd be 27 churches that would need to get planted. Now, I've not signed on to that goal yet, but... (laughs) But I will tell you that Perry County will not be our last church plant. And we're going to need courage to not shrink back from that challenge. To, to, we're going to need courage to refuse to say, let's just focus here. Let's just focus here. It'll be much easier on everyone if we just don't stretch ourselves to plant churches. It's going to take courage to plant churches. Let's talk about evangelism for a second. It already does, and it increasingly will take courage to talk to anyone about faith. 
And so we're going to need courage to continue to share the gospel in an increasingly hostile, hostile climate. And we need more people, and I count myself in this group, who don't excuse themselves by saying, well, you know, I'm not particularly gifted at evangelism. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to be a really nice person and hope that the gospel just emanates from my niceness and people understand the message that way. We need courage to open our mouths and share the gospel. Our lives can demonstrate the gospel, but at some point it's got to be shared. We've got to use words to share the gospel. We need courage to do that. And I say this often, it's not the exact same thing. It doesn't take quite the same level of courage as engaging someone in a direct conversation about faith, but you can participate in evangelism by simply inviting people to church. And for a large number of us, that takes a lot of courage, just inviting someone to church. And so I would say to you, if, if you are struggling in the area of evangelism, make that your first step. Pray that you would have the courage to begin to invite folks to church. We're going to need courage to trust God enough to continue to give financially to his work, even when times get tough economically. Will we honor God with our finances, or will we forget that there is a power greater than flesh And will we believe the lie that our financial well-being is all on us as if God isn't going to help us in that area of our lives? I could go on and on with examples of how we'll need courage, but I want to just share one more with you today, uh, your second promise that we're just about done. So one more. We're going to need courage in the not-too-distant future to expand our parking capacity and possibly even expand our building. Thank you and you. (laughs) If we view this property as a tool for evangelism, which is how we should view it, if you don't view it that way, I I would encourage you to view it that way. And if we understand that unsaved people in the United States approach church initially with a bit of a consumeristic mindset, you know, we're, we're, we're not in a third world country where people will worship in a foot of standing water. And all the Christians who see those pictures on Facebook and say, doggone right, that's how you ought to do it. Not one of you would be here to worship if we had a foot of standing water in the auditorium. So we're not in a third world country. We're in the country that we're in. And unsaved people approach us with a bit of a consumeristic mindset initially. Hopefully they get saved and they lose the consumeristic mindset and they don't care where they park. But when they're unsaved, they care about such things. And if we accept this, which we should, then having a building with inadequate parking in a four-foot hallway that 300 people have to run over top of each other to get in and out of the building is not a good thing. And you know this is not a good thing. At some point, we have to say these are fixable things and have the willingness and the courage to fix them. You see, here's the truth. Your building and your property do affect your effectiveness at fulfilling the Great Commission in the United States. Maybe 
We wish that wasn't true. Maybe it shouldn't be true. It probably shouldn't be true, but it is true. So I don't have any big announcements for you today, but I do want you to know that we're going to need the courage to take on projects like this. Even if they seem intimidating, even if we have concerns about the economy, even if we look in our own pockets and say, well, there's not much there. How are we going to do it? We still need the courage to say there is a power with us that is so great that what might look impossible to our natural eyes isn't. But we can actually do things that are too big for us because of the God we serve. Amen. All of these things and more that we could discuss can look to us like Sennacherib looked to Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem. They can be intimidating. They can look fearsome, they look big and scary. They can look like a challenge we're not up to. They can tempt us to think that we're going to be defeated. Whatever it is for you, friend, whether it's stepping up to lead, whether it is stepping out to share your faith, whether it's all of us together committing to planting churches or expanding buildings or anything else that looks too big for us, here's how we approach each of those challenges with strength and courage without fear, by really believing what is true, that there is a greater power with us than against us, that the arm of flesh is no match for Almighty God. Friends, there is a tendency within churches that survive long enough to mark a 10th anniversary to settle into a pattern of existence where the courage that was needed to start the church gives way to a more comfortable existence that no longer requires courage. We are going to resist that tendency here. We're going to continue to press into things that require courage because if we only do things that don't require any courage, if we back off every time something seems too big for us, then we will not accomplish all that God wants us to accomplish for the good of the world and for his glory. And so this is your notice. In the second decade of Vineyard Christian Church, we're going to need together, you're going to need courage. And I hope that we'll be like the people of Jerusalem and that we'll allow this truth about God's power to cause us to gain confidence for the things that lie ahead. Why don't you stand?